Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Israel will have an unprecedented second election in September. Time expired on the Likud coalition building attempt yesterday. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu couldn't persuade Avidor Lieberman and his five-seat party to form a government with them. Let's talk about it with Nathan Gutman. He's a Washington-based journalist and was formerly Washington correspondent for The Forward, Jerusalem Post, and Haaretz. Thanks for joining us, Nathan Gutman. We were just talking about the election results last month, and look at where we are. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, it's really surprising and even shocking for Israelis to see the country go to elections once again uh, after holding elections only uh, in, uh, several months ago, uh, April 9th, actually. And only 50 days after the new Knesset, that's the Israeli parliament, was sworn in. But uh, this was a culmination of political maneuvering, um, last-minute negotiations, and basically a failure of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was considered, I guess, up to now, um, this uh, kind of uh, um, political genius. It was his failure to create a new coalition even though his starting point was very comfortable. Now, Avidor Lieberman is uh, the character that kept Netanyahu from uh, forming this coalition. People may not be familiar with him and his five-seat party now. Um, who, who is he? What, 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 what's he about? Well, um, he, he's a politician that's been on the scene for at least two decades in Israel. Um, he's from uh, from the former Soviet Union, and originally his party represented many of the immigrants from the former Soviet Union who came to Israel and were looking for some kind of uh, a voice within the political system. And a decade ago, his party was very strong. It had 10, 15 uh, seats in the Knesset. But as uh, in this way of immigration began to assimilate in the Israeli society, of course, they stopped voting for um, sectorial parties. And he's left with a smaller party now. He's affiliated with the right wing of Israeli politics. He himself lives in a settlement in the West Bank. And he served in a, in a variety of key positions in various right wing uh, in governments, including Secretary of Defense uh, recently, um, foreign, uh, foreign, minister. Minister, foreign minister before that. So it's definitely a well-known figure. And his point now is trying somehow to reinvent his party from being an immigrant's party to being the party of the secular right-wing Israelis. And that's why the issue on which he, he chose to, to pick a fight with other coalition potential coalition members was whether the conscription of the ultra-Orthodox Jews would be increased. The idea is, of course, that secular Jews would want all uh, um, uh, citizens of Israel to serve in the military. The ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi Jews, as we call them, um, would like to expand their um, ability not to serve. And this is basically what broke the deal. Now, it, this is something that um, that has to be addressed in some way because the Supreme Court had made a ruling and said it's not fair that the ultra-Orthodox don't serve in the military in the way it is currently written. So the government has to do something. Is, is that the size of it? Exactly. Yeah. There is a, they can't just let it expire or leave it as it is because the Supreme Court, as you mentioned, ruled that this status quo is not legal. And that's why the next government would have to figure out a way to advance legislation that would both uh, um, live up to the requirements of the Supreme Court and, and expand uh, um, uh, conscription among uh, um, uh, Haredi Jews, and at the same time, make it somehow palatable to the ultra-Orthodox parties 
that represent uh, about uh, in 16 uh, seats in the next Knesset. And so Lieberman wanted a bill essentially that was going to upset the ultra-Orthodox parties, and they would not go in the coalition if they had to support this bill. It was just a, two things that were water and ice, water and fire. It, Exactly. But at the same time, these issues have come up in the past also, and there were always ways to work them around. And there were, even this time around, there were many compromise ideas that were floated, things that would basically kick the can down the road and move it to a later stage. And we've seen in Israeli politics many similar crises that uh, were solved in the last moment. Uh, and that's why most Israelis, Israelis assume that this would be the case also this time, that at the end of the day, facing the possibility of not forming a coalition at all and then having to return the mandate to the president of Israel and maybe allow the opposition parties uh, in to get a shot at forming a new government, when faced with that, everyone would compromise. But that didn't happen. They didn't compromise. Now, why exactly do you think that is? Because I noticed that Avidor Lieberman said, well, it's not vengeance on my part. I'm not upset because of previous things that happened to me uh, by the prime minister. It's strictly uh, on this. I'm, I'm running an issue here. Well, in part, it's because uh, Avigdor Lieberman feels that this is an important issue for him, um, not so much for the current elections, but if he wants to really uh, think of his place in the future of Israeli politics, he needs to break forward and to be one of the challengers um, for a post-Netanyahu era of leading the country. And in order to do that, he needs to position himself as standing up for something. And this something would be the, the rights of uh, um, non-Orthodox Israeli uh, Jews. Th that would be part of it. The other part is also uh, could be just a, a political miscalculation or the belief that even if uh, um, uh, he, he manages to, to break up uh, this coalition or this potential coalition, there is something better waiting around the world, whether it's uh, new coalition discussions or new elections, as we're facing now, that this will somehow benefit uh, Lieberman and his party. Now, uh, to suss this out a little bit, I, I was interested in the analysis by Shamil uh, Rosner in the New York Times, and he is the political editor at the Jewish Journal. And he, he sussed it out that really that there should be a realignment of uh, of, of political parties in Israel, of coalition parties. And his idea is that the ultra-Orthodox are pretty unpopular, you know, even with the secular right. And uh, there, you know, there is no left to pick on anymore. The difference between Netanyahu and the, uh, the, the blue-white coalition that he mm -hmm. beat is very negligible uh, policy-wise. They're very close to each other technically. So therefore, why not make a, make a realignment, make the ultra-Orthodox the, the bad guys? Because the left isn't the bad guy anymore in Israeli politics. There is no left. Um, and you get yourself a great big center-right coalition thing that you can be a part of and that's more enduring than the, the kind of coalitions they've been putting together. Well, th that could work except for a couple of issues that uh, – a, a couple of obstacles. First of all, um, even though there is no significant real left-wing left in Israel in the – 
um, Liberal Party Merits uh, um, is just about disappeared. It has five seats. Uh, um, the Labour Party uh, that used to be the centrist left uh, party has only six seats. So definitely there is no left. But the term left is still seen as uh, um, is still used uh, as a boogeyman in Israeli politics. In fact, coming out of the vote yesterday, last night, after midnight in Israel, after uh, the Knesset dissolved itself, Netanyahu uh, went to the cameras and accused Avigdor Lieberman, a right-wing politician and a settler himself, accused him of being a leftist. So that's still a term in Israeli politics. Well, that, doesn't, course, that mean, doesn't that go to the point that it, it's become meaningless? It's like it's just um, it, it's, there's, there's no one there. Of course, it is meaningless, but it still plays into the identity politics and into the fact that if someone is deemed the leftist, then in some way he's not worthy of being part of the coalition or part of the government. Now, the other thing is, of course, that there are no major ideological differences between um, Netanyahu's Likud party and uh, in this new uh, coalition conglomerate, opposition conglomerate, Blue and White. Um, but there is one difference, and the fact is, the difference is... Bibi Netanyahu himself. The only thing separating blue and white from the Likud is Netanyahu. Their demand is that Netanyahu, now facing indictment on indictments on bribery um, charges in Israel, that he will not lead the country for the next uh, um, two or three or four years. That's their demand, that they're willing to uh, um, consider a coalition with the Likud, but not with Netanyahu himself because of his corruption cases. So even though ideologically there's no... Um, big difference between the two parties, the, the personality there uh, makes a difference. I'm talking with Nathan Gutman, Washington-based journalist, about the Israeli elections. There's going to be new snap elections in September after the Netanyahu government could not form a coalition after their uh, election victory in April. Um, so it, it, to keep going with this, it's, um, it's amazing to, to think about that um, – that Netanyahu here, um, right after this big victory, has to go back into another election campaign. And it's I can't help but thinking that this one is going to look worse for him personally. And in this scenario, um, you know, you've just described a scenario where, you know, there should probably be a coalition government with, uh, with everybody else but him. Uh, and now this election is going to make that a reality probably. Well, first of all, we, sh we should clarify that he wasn't forced uh, into another uh, election. Actually, um, that was the surprise move. According to Israeli law, if uh, um, the candidate uh, who has the best uh, chance to form a coalition fails in reaching that coalition within the time frame given to him, he gives the mandate back to the president of Israel, who then chooses the other um, most uh, um, plausible uh, um, leader to, to try and form a coalition. Netanyahu could have got, and should have probably gone through that process. And then uh, maybe Benny Gantz, the leader of uh, Blue and White, would get a chance uh, to form a coalition. Maybe others within the Likud, not Netanyahu, would get a chance. But uh, in order to, to prevent that, he went to the snap move of dissolving the Knesset and going to new elections. Well, well now, you couldn't do that because he'd lose, because Lieberman would probably jump in with Blue and White and there there would be something. Right, yeah, but but that's the way the process was planned to be. If you can't form a coalition, then someone else gets a chance to try. Um, he managed to maneuver himself out of that. Um, actually convincing 61 members of the Knesset, many of them 
only the, the, the newly elected that just got sworn in a, a month ago, he managed to convince them to vote in favor of basically firing themselves, which is kind of unprecedented. But uh, to your question of, of how Netanyahu will fare in these new elections uh, set for September 17th, um, his calculation is that there is a strong right-wing bloc, um, and that's not going to change. Ideologically, no one's going to move to another place. And maybe he could actually benefit from the fact that uh, um, some of, of his supporters that uh, um, maybe want to see him as prime minister but voted for smaller uh, right-wing parties will come back home in a sense. We'll say, well, we actually, uh, our conclusion from this failed uh, coalition negotiation is that we need one big strong party and that the Likud will actually benefit from that. That is his calculation. And, of course, you mean, we, we talked about the indictments. Part of this whole maneuver, or maybe a big part, is to make sure that the new coalition passes these types of immunity laws and laws limiting the power of the Supreme Court in order, basically, to save Netanyahu from trial. But in this next election campaign, though, doesn't Avidor Lieberman's position look good to voters, look look better to voters than it did in the last campaign? Because he's now running against something that um, that people think is, uh, you know, uh, unpopular. His his issue is is going to be good for him. On the one hand, yeah, Lieberman will be stronger because um, he's running for a cause. He he has a cause now, and it's clear what he wants to get from it, what he can provide the voters with. On the other hand, Netanyahu is branding him as the person who prevented the, the, uh, a right-wing government, who, who basically um, took a, a good chance of forming a right-wing government and forced new elections. And that could backfire in the elections when people will, Lieberman voters who are basically right-wing voters will say, well, uh, we support what he says, but look, uh, we can't really trust him to uh, to be part of the next right-wing government. So it, it could go either way. Uh, where does this leave the U.S.? Because the U.S. had the deal of the century ready. They were getting ready with this economic uh, conference in Bahrain. Jared Kushner's going there. Uh, does the U.S. now got to put all this on hold? And does it matter? Well, it does matter because um, the longer you wait with a peace plan, the less relevant it becomes. Uh, clearly, President Trump uh, um, didn't like the uh, uh, the latest uh, uh, troubles that Netanyahu was facing. He tweeted while uh, Netanyahu was trying to negotiate a government. He tweeted uh, um, support for him, something that was seen as kind of blunt uh, interven- intervention in uh, the domestic politics of Israel. Uh, today, he spoke to reporters uh, when asked about that. Uh, he, uh, he he said he was sorry about uh, Netanyahu not being able to form a new government. So definitely he would like to see Bibi win again. Um, Jared Kushner, meanwhile, arrived in Israel just when all of this was happening. And he met uh, this morning with uh, Netanyahu to discuss this uh, deal of the century peace plan, which isn't happening right now. According to the administration, um, the plan, or at least the, the, the substantial part of it, will be presented at a time when it could be most effective, meaning all those deadlines we heard about June or late June are off the table right now. You'll basically have to wait until there's a new government in Israel. And we're talking if elections are September, then probably October, November, um, uh, nothing before that. But still, the administration plans to hold uh, um, these economic workshops that uh, are the initial part of the peace plan and will take part in, uh, to take place in Bahrain 
in uh, on June 25th. That is uh, going to go ahead as planned, mainly because everything is in place already and the administration wouldn't want to cancel something that they already negotiated. But that will be it. There will be no bigger peace plan before the Israeli elections. Lastly, do you have a gut feeling about how the population in Israel will respond to another election like this after right on the heels of another one? Do they have election fatigue? Is I mean, can yeah, it just doesn't seem like you can replay the thing again and get the the same results? Somebody they're going to be mad at somebody. Well, they they are mad, um, and definitely when when you ask Israelis and, and you hear just anecdotally Israelis speaking. Um, they didn't want to go to elections once again. They see it as a waste of time, a waste of, of money, and uh, um, some kind of political maneuvering that's uh, being done at the expense of the people. So it may mean a lower outturn. Um, traditionally, um, Israelis vote. There's very high uh, turnout uh, in Israeli elections. It might uh, cause some people just to give up and not go to vote. Um, and I guess in the, in the months to come, the the question is um, how will Bibi pull it off? Right now, he seems to be positioned uh, uh, to end the elections with another victory, pretty much the same place he was before, maybe even better. But investigations are out there. Um, there's a, a lot of um, um, there were protests against the move that he wants to make to limit the power of the Supreme Court. All these could fester and grow throughout the summer. So it's really too early to guess. But at least for now, Bibi is in pretty good shape. Nathan Gutman is a Washington-based journalist. He was Washington correspondent for the Forward Jerusalem Post and Haaretz. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the latest surprise in Israel about the new elections in September. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk uh, with the uh, energy visionary uh, Amory Lovins and Judy Hill Lovins, and we'll discuss energy and optimism about energy. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Brushwood Center at Ryerson Woods in Riverwoods will honor environmentalists Amory Lovins and Judy Hill Lovins at an event on Saturday. Amory Lovins is the energy visionary who co-founded the Rocky Mountain Institute. He's author most recently of Reinventing Fire. Judy Hill Lovins is a renowned landscape photographer, and they'll receive a Distinguished Environmental Leadership Award, and their photographs are up at the Brushwood Center. Uh, Global Perspectives is the exhibition that runs through June 9th, and it's good to see you both. Great to, great to meet, have, meet you and have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about the energy transition with you, but first let's talk about photography. Um, you've got photos that are going to be up at the Brushwood Center, and uh, Judy, you are the renowned photographer in this couple. Um, what will what, people see up there? Well, they'll see a, an accumulation of uh, about 15 years of photographs that uh, Amory and I have made as we travel 
around the world. We're featuring uh, three of the most recent trips we've made, the uh, Galapagos, uh, Iceland, and uh, China. Uh, and then uh, there'll be five slideshows and two great big prints. Is Amory pretty good at photography? Or? He's very good. His first two books were um, photographic um, coffee table books with uh, Friends of the Earth. So he's, he really showed before I ever uh, showed as a photographer. <laughs> what do you like about photography, Amory? <sighs> I don't have to think about energy. I can <laughs> enjoy natural beauty and really get immersed in trying to uh, bring what I see to what I wish other people were there to enjoy. Do you guys have a favorite photo that's in the ex exhibition that you would want to tell people about? Well, we each have a favorite photograph in the exhibition, and we um, we have prints. There are two big prints, and the re everything else is a slideshow. My favorite is a picture of two horses running in the snow in a snowstorm, and uh, Amory's is a uh, reflections of uh, in a Berlin canal, and they're big, big prints. And as I recall, the the one of the horses. Uh, you took sort of accidentally as you were falling backwards off the fence. And it... I didn't mean to fall off the fence, but it was a steel fence that used to hold in buffaloes. And uh, you think it would be sturdy? Yeah, it was. yeah. It's easy to herd bison anywhere they want to go. <laughs> but I slipped, and as the shutter went up, I saw the sky. So I didn't think I had a, had pictures of these beautiful horses running past me, but I did. That's terrific. That's a great story. Um, you're, I imagine, you know, if you're thinking about energy all the time as you do, Amory, uh, and you get a chance to kind of think about something else, it is, it is wonderful and, and a great relief and experience. You have such a great philosophy about um, how to handle uh, energy. It's such a, a panicked kind of thing for a lot of people. People worry about our energy future. But you talk about applied hope. Uh, what is applied hope? <laughs> it goes back to a story about Bill McClarney, early new alchemist, who uh, was in his research center in Costa Rica stirring this vat of algae when some brassy North American lady strode in and demanded to know why he was stirring green goo and what really mattered in the world was love. So he thought about that a bit and said, well, there's theoretical love and there's applied love and kept on stirring. And uh, a lot of us stir and strive in a spirit we call applied hope. It's not theoretical hope. It's not mere glandular optimism, but it's uh, – doing every day the things that create a world worth being hopeful about. You know, you, you can't depress people into action. I like to do solutions, not problems. And there are a lot of excellent solutions being done by people and groups all over the world that if more of us knew about them, we would feel a lot better about the state of the world. Uh, and uh, remember that, as, as Frank of the Play says, uh, hope is a stance, not an assessment Tell me about some of the things that make you optimistic right now. 
not optimistic uh, applied hope, <laughs> applied <laughs> no, hope. because optimism and pessimism are, are both different forms of fatalism where you right. you treat the future as, as fate not choice and don't take responsibility for creating the world you want well <clears throat> uh, renewable energy is often correctly cited as a source of hope and uh, it's actually two-thirds or so of the net additions of global generating capacity now. It's for, for those who think that solar and wind power might amount to something in decades, I'm kind of tempted to say, uh, dude, what part of they just took two-thirds of your market don't you get? And energy efficiency is twice that big each year in uh, decarbonizing the, the economy. Uh, and yet the potential for both is enormously bigger. In fact, we've just figured out how to make energy efficiency about a, well, several fold bigger and cheaper resource than had been thought by designing buildings and vehicles and factories as whole systems, not as piles of parts. Uh, so that's that's pretty exciting stuff. And it's not it's not just directly energy. There are important moves to stop treating soil like dirt and and uh, take carbon out of the air and put it back in tilth where it belongs by doing farming, forestry, and grazing properly. Uh, there are uh, many wonderful developments in uh, distributing our energy and other vital systems to make them more resilient so that big failures that are now inevitable by design become impossible by design. Uh, lots of good stuff going on, and we don't hear as much about it because it doesn't sell as many uh, headlines or clicks to uh, give good news. Uh, Judy, do you want to weigh in on this? Do you feel uh, hopeful? Have you built up hope uh, that we're going to make an energy transition? Very much so. Um, the thing that I notice about Amory is he's researched for years and years and years all the trends. And the trends, as you say, Amory, are all going in the right direction, much more slowly than I had imagined as a sort of hippie ski bum dropout in the uh, early 70s when I first came to Aspen. Uh, I was all ready to see big changes fast. But these big changes have happened very consistently over a long period of time and I think are speeding up. I think we're about to if we were Sisyphus, I think we're about to push the rock over the top of the yeah. uh, hill. Back uh, eight years ago, 60 colleagues and I did a business and design book called Reinventing Fire, uh, which envisaged by 2050 a 2.6-fold bigger U.S. economy using no oil, no coal, no nuclear energy, third less natural gas, and getting the same or better energy services uh, $5 trillion cheaper than business as usual. And now that's right on track in the market because the private sector smells the $5 trillion. That's what should be happening. I'm talking with Amory Lovins, co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Judy Hill Lovins, renowned landscape photographer. They're in Chicago and are going to be at an event at the Brushwood Center at Ryerson Woods, where they are going to be honored as environmentalists uh, this weekend. Well, you know, I, I, I really like the hopeful sentiment. Um, uh, do you? In, I'm worried that it doesn't go fast enough. You know, the the speed of it is is an issue. The IPCC came out with this report last fall and said you've got 12 years. Um, do you think 
we are going fast enough to make this energy transition in 12 years? Because you were out there at 2050, and that's that's a long way from now. Yeah, I think it's actually accelerating nicely. In fact, there was an interesting paper recently saying that if the growth of solar power alone continued at recent rates in the world, it could provide a fifth of the world's total primary energy, not just electricity, in another eight years, which is hard to believe until you check the numbers. And it's it's uh, it's basically because the more renewable energy you buy, the cheaper it gets, so you buy more, so it gets cheaper. And now we know how to do the same thing for most energy efficiency. It's like the other shoe dropping in the energy transformation. Uh, we we see huge changes in, in sentiment among energy executives, among investors. Uh, and, of course, we would like this transition to go faster. But it, it isn't just a linear process of convincing one person at a time because capital markets keenly sniff out disruption. Uh, they get competitive advantage by detecting its odor before the other firm does. And once the capital markets think you're in or headed for the toaster as an old incumbent energy industry, uh, they don't wait for the toast to get done. They pull their money out and put it into the new stuff. And so far, $8 trillion have prudently fr- fled the fossil fuel industries. And once once that happens, once that, that flip from fossil to renewable and efficiency starts to happen, the old industries lose ability to recruit talent, they lose political clout, they lose balance sheet value because their fossil fuel reserves are worth a lot less, and that further accelerates the chain in a virtuous spiral. So uh, there is now a lot of evidence that when, when a fast challenger like these new energy industries reaches just 2 or 3% market share, uh, the capital flees. And that, that's what we see happening all over. Are, are you worried at all that governments can't seem to break away as maybe as fast as capital markets? Even governments that did great, like Germany, had some had some troubles and, and fell back on coal a little bit. Australia had a carbon tax and went away from that and, and went to conservative Well, be, because this is the world's most powerful set of industries. The, the rents it collects are about 3% of the entire world economy, so they can afford to buy – whatever lobbyist lawyers and politicians they need to defend their interests. But we are getting now to the tipping point where the political clout that lets them do that is evaporating. And uh, in the in the oil industry, where I've worked for a long time uh, advising, uh, we see the more forward-looking companies uh, realizing that their product, their, their oil – is becoming uncompetitive even at low prices before it becomes unavailable even at high prices. So they'd better get with the program and and start uh, uh, creating and enabling the new energy industry being part of that rather than trying to protect the old one. I noticed that the Department of Energy the other day announced something called uh, 
uh, freedom gas. They're going to create, uh, in, they're going to increase export capacity from Freeport LNG uh, liquid natural gas projects critical to spreading freedom gas, gas throughout the world, and they're going to give America's allies a diverse, affordable source of clean energy. And that's the Undersecretary of Energy talking about freedom gas. We're, this is the this is a U.S. government. Well, policy. that sounds like a way to rebrand fracking. Uh, in order to displace not only, for example, Russian gas in Europe, for which there may be a case, uh, at least temporarily, but also, for example, to replace renewables in the Caribbean. That's not a good idea. And the way our government tries to force uh, American gas down the throats of other governments that have better alternatives, Mexico is another example, uh, is, is, I think, uh, quite shameful. Uh, the Mexican government was pressured into take-or-pay contracts for a lot of gas uh, that's being uh, uh, forced into the market ahead of renewables that are cheaper. Uh, and I, I think that's not in Mexico's or America's interest. We're talking about energy markets with Amory Lovins, energy visionary who co-founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Judy Hill Lovins, renowned landscape photographer. They're in town to accept a environmental award at the Brushwood Center at Ryerson Woods in Riverwoods this weekend. I want to go back to something you said about um, our economy growing and uh, making the energy transition at the same time. I think a lot of people uh, have been talking about not thinking so much about growth and a growth economy. And if we're going to have to make a transition, we've got to make a sacrifice. And um, is that that doesn't uh, that you don't get into that? You're not, you're not into um, the kind of uh, you know we should all ride our bikes or do the, do something different. At Rocky Mountain Institute, we we assume normal uh, economic growth projections and show how to meet the resulting needs for energy services. Uh, cheaper, more securely, more cleanly. Uh, and uh, we're simply using conventional modes of argument and data sources to show the different conclusion that the market is actually coming to. Uh, however, it is also important to recognize uh, that in every faith tradition, uh, it is th thought to be uh, – uh, perverse and unhelpful to try to meet non-material needs by material means. This is called vanity, uh, <laughs> and we're always warned against that. And although in our work we take market economics very seriously as a tool and we use it to do what it does well, uh, we also think markets make a great mass, uh, a great uh, a servant, and a bad master and a worse religion. I was reading uh, the New York Times recently, and I noticed uh, someone from the Rocky Mountain Institute had a, uh, uh, a piece in there about gas stoves. And about what? Should, uh, gas stoves. Uh, we should yes. get rid of our gas stoves and move to electric stoves. Is that, um, is that a decent piece of the puzzle? Yes, uh, and interestingly, a lot of people think you have to cook with gas because it's superior to other methods in convenience, controllability, or whatever. Actually, there are new methods of electric cooking that are superior to gas or induction cooking in all respects. 
much more efficient, uh, more controllable, safer, and so on, and much better for the environment. So I, I think uh, we're going to see an expanded slate of options that will help buildings get off gas, and then we uh, and there's a similar solution set coming up in industry. Uh, gas is a, a sunset industry over decades, uh, just like oil, and then we can stop emitting methane into the air, and uh, that's the quickest way we know to turn down the global thermostat. Amory Lovins is the energy visionary who co-founded the Rocky Mountain Institute. He wrote Reinventing Fire recently and is uh, is encouraging us to use applied hope with our energy future. And thanks very much to Judy Hill Lovins, renowned landscape photographer. They're both in town to be at the Brushwood Center at Ryerson Woods, where they'll be honored with an environmental award on Saturday. It's great to see you and great to think energy with you and uh, photography and beauty. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we will have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we'll talk about uh, making the world uh, better in just a moment. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Let's visit with global activism favorite Wendy Sternberg, founder and executive director of Genesis at the Crossroads. Her Saffron Caravan Universal Love Tour lands at the DuSable Museum of African American History on Sunday. Good to see you, Wendy. Thank you, Jerome. For people who have never heard of Genesis at the Crossroads, what are you doing? We are working on uh, bringing people together across divides with a cross-cultural collaborative message that if we can find our common ground and the things that bind us as human beings and connect us on neutral and creative ground, we can actually come together as community. And one of the cool things you do is the Genesis Academy Summer Institute, and you've brought the kids in previously, young people from all over the world, and they're doing exactly what you said, breaking down bonds and and peace building. Creating bonds, breaking Breaking down down barriers. barriers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right. We have the fifth cohort coming in uh, in July. And we're quintupling our applicant pool and drawing from 23 conflict areas. And we consider parts of the U.S. conflict areas like Chicago. Uh, that's It sounds like an amazing thing. And um, now the Saffron Caravan is part of your conglomeration of, of events. And this is a group of musicians. And they're also coming together and breaking down barriers. Yeah, they're actually our signature work in what we call arts diplomacy. And they come from the whole ensemble, comes from Iran, Afghanistan, Cuba, Morocco, Israel, India, Venezuela, Brazil, and the United States. And yes, Venezuela. <laughs> and we do have a clip of Saffron Caravan music. And here's a bit of uh, what that sounds like when you put it all together. One, two, three. Here is 
That's Saffron Caravan that was recorded earlier in our Jim and K. Maybe performance studio, and you'll be featuring them Sunday at the uh, DuSable Museum of African American History. That's right, and then after the performance, um, we are going to be doing an audience interactive program looking at why music is such a wonderful vehicle for this kind of bridge building. And um, to look at Saffron Caravan as a case study because they're negotiating their own boundaries and barriers in working together. Uh, with us is Perry uh, Ermer. She is the exe- president and CEO at the DuSable Museum of African American History. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. It's always an honor to be here with you and to be here with Wendy. You know, we've uh, formed this very new partnership, just a matter of a few weeks old. Uh, but when I heard from Wendy, uh, she had spoken with Tammy McCann, who's our uh, American music curator at large. And Tammy, uh, ironically, is now in Tel Aviv, uh, performing in Tel Aviv, uh, and couldn't be here for the concert that's coming up. Uh, but we just, you know, we just gelled immediately, and the the missions of our of both of our organizations have so much overlap uh, and so much commonality uh, that we just couldn't we couldn't turn down the opportunity to partner with uh, Saffron Caravan Performance at uh, the Dusable. And I noticed that um, you're also going to have Robin Kelly, who represents Illinois 2nd District, uh, at the event on Sunday. Yes, that was a really exciting connection for us. Uh, We were working on a women's leadership salon. Perry was also invited to that. This is where the synergy, as Perry was talking about, really built on itself very quickly. And I think when you're working with like-minded people that see opportunity, things move very quickly. And uh, Illinois Congressman Robin Kelly is chair of the gala on Sunday. And we have a clip, clip of Congresswoman Kelly telling us why the work of Genesis at the Crossroads resonates with her. In a huge part of my adult life, I've been involved with diversity issues. I got started at Bradley University doing diversity training and then brought that to where I live now in the South Suburban area. We started something called the Diversity Dinners in the South Suburbs. A long time ago, we had hands across the South Suburbs, and I even started it in Congress. We call it Breaking Bread. We bring colleagues together across politics, uh, geographic location, age, race and we just have dinner together and get to know each other better. You know, it's interesting, like sports, I think that music and the arts bring people together, especially with young people. Just take rap, for instance. And I just think arts, because of its creativity, it kind of allows people to be themselves or appreciate the work that others do. We have to see work done around violence prevention, and we have to get to the root causes of the problem. Uh, We need simple things like people to step up, even to be mentors. We need to expose people that may not get exposure to things like the arts. You know, when you talk to people in cities sometimes, some people have never been out of their neighborhood to see something different. Or if you talk to people in rural areas, you know, they have their opinions of the city and vice versa. So I think that programs that expose young people more, that mentor young people more, get people from different backgrounds the opportunity to be together. But I think that everybody can do their part of being more understanding, more curious about people that they may deem different than them.
That was Congresswoman Robin Kelly, who represents the 2nd District in Illinois. She'll be at the DuSable Museum of African American History on Sunday for the Saffron Caravan Universal Love Concert that'll be going on. And Steve Bynum from Worldview is going to be there. He's going to help with the uh, question and answer, the emceeing, and uh, it should be a terrific time. Uh, you know, I was noticing that she, Robin Kelly, was talking about rap there. And when you brought the young people from the Genesis Summer Academy Summer Institute, they were doing their own raps, and uh, they were really good and really fun. To, 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 they did that on the radio with us. It was a hoot. Yes, they did. They did it in Zochin. They did it in Urdu. Um, and they did it in Khmer, uh, one of the uh, young men from Cambodia. And yes, I think we all got a, a good kick out of it. Raps become the universal language. Well, it has, and, and spoken word poetry as well. Very, very important culturally. And, you know, we're just so thrilled at the DuSable to pick up on what Congresswoman Kelly was saying. Uh, the exposure, particularly for African-American urban youth, is so, so important in our whole educational mission. You know, uh, you know, if our young people understood that they are not simply descendants of slaves, they are descendants of enslaved people, but our, it's not our origin story as black people. Right. And so for them to understand the entire diaspora and how they fit into this and how all of these cultures are connected, uh, not only on the continent of Africa, but throughout uh, South America, Latin America, the Caribbean, North Africa. Um, there are so, so many connections that they need to be made aware of. And you're right. Sports and music uh, and the arts are a universal language. And we're just very happy to be partnered with uh, with uh, Saffron Caravan and with Genesis to bring this message home, particularly to our communities and to our youth. Um, Wendy, tell us a little more about uh, who will be at Saffron Caravan. The, 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 the band itself is, um, we're listening to kind of a different conglomeration of it in, in the background. Yes, you are. There's four musicians that are coming in. And one is Baji Assad, who's Lebanese-Brazilian and actually has Italian blood as well. So she's a multicultural in and of herself. And Rhythms of the World, the first song you heard, was actually her composition. Uh, Aaron Ben Susan was the second composition. He's uh, from Morocco, from Essaouira, and he's trained liturgically as a Jewish cantor, um, but does a lot of things with jazz and blues and very much drawing from where he's from in Africa, where the origin of blues and jazz comes from. So to a nod to Perry's comment about identity and, and sharing oneself. And then we have um, Haitam Safia, who's Arab-Israeli. And what's interesting about him, he's from a Muslim family in a Christian village in a Druze community in the state of Israel. Wow. So how's that for multicultural? And uh, then rounding it out, we have uh, Javier Salme Matze, who's from Venezuela. And... Um, Someone who brings the whole world of the sounds of the street and the people and the vibrancy of that culture. How often do they get to practice together before they do this? It seems it's a, a that's an amazing conglomeration of people. Well, they they have work themselves and they have work with other organizations and other ensembles. So they practice when they're all together and they're literally coming from the four corners of the earth to do this work and to bring this message. Well, it sounds terrific. If people want more information about the event on Sunday, where should they go? Uh, they can go to our website at gatc.org, 
And um, there's ticket information, there's detailed biographies, and there's information about a VIP reception for those who want to support it at a higher level. It sounds like a terrific event, and I hope a lot of people go. Steve Bynum from Worldview is going to be there. He's going to MC. He's going to do some of the uh, conversation that you'll be having after the performance, and uh, it sounds like a great event. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Perry, for being partners with us. Well, thank you. It's uh, a wonderful effort, and we appreciate the being we, included. Where where are people going to sit in the DuSable Museum? Where, where do people go? Well, you know, we have a wonderful auditorium that seats uh, just shy of 450 people. It's a fully fitted theater, and we're looking forward to having the performance there and the reception to follow. Uh, but I encourage everyone to, to come and visit the DuSable uh, and become members. Harry Ermer is president and CEO of the DuSable Museum of American History. And thanks very much also to uh, Wendy uh, Sternberg, founder and executive director of Genesis at the Crossroads. Great to see you. That's a little more of the Saffron Caravan recorded in our Jim and K. Maybe performance studio. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll ta- be talking with the Pope's right-hand man on climate. He's written a new book called The Ten Green Commandments of Laudato Si. We will talk about the effort on environmentalism tomorrow from the Catholic Church. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.